Today is April 21st, 2022, and welcome to The Regimen, where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and their guests discuss the latest public health issues relevant to all healthcare providers, their patients, and policymakers. Listen to find out how pharmacy students and pharmacists can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. My name is Sabrina Silvera, and I'm a last year pharmacy student at the University of Rhode Island, working with the Rhode Island Department of Health alongside my professor, Dr. Bradberg. And I'm Jeff Bradberg. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice at the URI College of Pharmacy and the Academic Collaborations Officer at the Rhode Island Department of Health. Today, we are excited to welcome Dr. Thomas Franco, an ambulatory care pharmacist and associate professor of pharmacy practice, to discuss the draft CDC clinical practice guideline for prescribing opioids, as well as the pharmacist's role in pain management. So welcome, Dr. Franco. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first off, thank you for having me here. I'm grateful for that. My current job is associate professor at the Nesbitt School of Pharmacy at Wilkes University. Uh, so that's in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So Northeast by Scranton. So if you've watched The Office, that's where, that's where I'm at. Uh, but I'm a 2011 graduate of the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy. I did a PGY1 residency at the Veteran Affairs Hospital in Wilkes-Barre. And then I went to work for almost two years at Geisinger Medical Center uh, in Danville, Pennsylvania, doing outpatient non-cancer pain management. And then I transitioned over to my faculty role at Wilkes in 2013. And since then, I've been doing a lot of work with pain management, substance use disorders, both in terms of our curriculum and then at the state, regional, and upwards of the national level. Uh, So we'll go with current positions outside of that from a service perspective. wrapping up being the, I guess I'm now the immediate past coordinator of the pain palliative care addiction SIG for the American Pharmacists Association. I'm on the uh, National Executive Council for ROCAI, and I'm the current president of our State Pharmacy Association. Thank you, Dr. Franco. It sounds like you're very busy. You do quite a bit in the pharmacy world. So can you tell us a little bit more as your current role as a pharmacist and how you got involved in this area of pharmacy practice? You know, it was quite a serendipitous uh, adventure, my, my path into pain management. When I was wrapping up my residency, I interviewed for, at the time, a, a role as an anti-coag pharmacist back at my hometown. I figured, well, I'm drowning in student loan debt. I could stay at home and I could make some money. And there we go. And as I was walking out the door, they said, hey, by the way, we have this pain management position that uh, Geisinger had a lot of success with their anti-coag and diabetes pharmacy group that they're like, we want to get involved with, with pain management. And this is, this is 2012. And I was just like, whatever you think I'm going to be good at, I will do it. And I got, that's how I got the position. And it really was a great learning opportunity because I was the only person, the only pharmacist in the system who did this. And having the opportunity to not just learn about the medications, which I really did, I learned a great deal about, but the opportunity to connect with other providers. So our physical therapy department was right across the hall from me. I had gotten very nice uh, relationships built with our pain psychology folks and our psychiatry team. So we actually ended up having once a month sessions where we would have Myself, uh, reps from primary care, pain medicine, addiction medicine, psychology, physical therapy, OT, spiritual care, all get together and discuss our most complicated patients. And I, I think what, what when the opportunity came to go to the faculty role, 
what it made me think about was that I was seeing about 10 people a day. And I said, I'm one person seeing 10 people a day. But, you know, the class sizes at Wilkes were anywhere between the you know low 60s to mid 70s. Said if I can teach, we'll call it 70 people to see 10 people a day. Now I'm seeing 700 a day. And year after year after year, that'll just compound. So it's an opportunity to help more people because I realized how much the, the lack of training in this area really did have on the potential and the impact it had on on patients. Uh, so so that's that's kind of how I fell into this. And then the whole world of substance use opened up because they sent me out to do some uh, some training at their drug and alcohol program, which is called Marworth. It's up in uh, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. So I spent some time uh, with up there. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to have some great mentors at PCP, George Downs being the big one. I think everybody knows who George Downs is in the substance use world. Uh, you know, got me more into the fold, took me out to the APHA Institute at Utah. And the rest, as they would say, is history. Uh, and, and here I am. That's really exciting. It sounds like a really great story. And it's interesting because like you said, pain management isn't something that there's a lot of education on because it's so patient specific. Can you speak a little bit about like what the patient population is that you serve now? Like what are your typical patients? If you have any typical patients, I know that's kind of hard to ask. I think it's difficult to say typical patient for honestly anything. Uh, I mean, you could have patients with diabetes that fit every walk of life, just like we do with pain uh, or, or any condition. So it, it, I wouldn't necessarily say that I see a specific type of patient. Uh, I will say that my focal point is on non-cancer pain rather than cancer. Uh, and under the pain management umbrella, there's non-cancer, there's cancer. Hospice and palliative care is its own unique area as well. So I say that my, my if you want to call it niche area, would be more of the outpatient doctor's office type. Uh, someone comes in with car accident. Um, they have really bad arthritis. They have a herniated disc in their neck or in their back. Uh, but also patients who have fibromyalgia, patients who have diabetes pain, patients with post-repetic neuralgia. That's where I tend to see it in terms of my pain patients. That's the typical, we'll go with conditions, pain conditions that I would happen to see. And so do you see them across all ages? And you know that, those are wildly different you know, pain syndromes, uh, you know, do you, you know, I think some pharmacy professors and, and clinicians are sort of AMCARE, which is something I know Sabrina wants to go into. So she's, you're teaching right now, not only through the podcast, but direct to Sabrina here and what, um, what they should do. Do you get referrals and charge for them? Or is this all an academic practice? This would be all an academic practice. So uh, as faculty members, we're basically farmed out to our practice sites. And at Wilkes, we have, I'm sure at URI, you have the same. You have folks in community practice, AMCARE, hospital practice, and probably more. So we're not official employees of our practice sites. So billing is something that, at least as of now, seems kind of impractical. What I would say is when I worked at Geisinger, I did get referrals. So people could be referred to me by either pain management or their primary care docs. And I'd say at least 90% of them were from primary care. And I had a collaborative practice agreement. So I could write for anything I wanted under the pain spectrum, make referrals, order lab tests, 
Uh, and if I wanted to prescribe an opioid or any C2 for that matter, or any control for that matter, uh, I would just notify the physician who made the referral. And nine times out of 10, they'd say, sure, whatever you'd want, you got it. Here at my current practice site, the, the whole system serves as a primary uh, family medicine for primary care, but a large portion of our patients do have some type of chronic pain issue. And we, we uh, our site is a uh, training program for medical residents. So I have PGY one through three, and the majority of them will come and say, hey, I have a pain patient, I need help. Or, hey, I have a pain and substance use patient, I need help. So I, I like to consider myself a glorified consultant at this particular uh, juncture. Um, if the opportunity does roll around in the future for billing, I mean, I think we can all be, we can all agree the need for pharmacists to be able to be reimbursed for these types of services is paramount. And, you know, we're doing a lot of great advocacy work at state and national levels for that. And we're going to keep that going. Um, but until that time comes, uh, that's kind of how my practice is currently set up. Thank you for speaking about that. It's interesting to hear that you were able to prescribe under a CPA previously, including opioids. And as we've all, I'm sure, heard, the opioid epidemic is a very hot topic right now. And there's been a lot more stricter laws and regulations regarding opioids for pain. And so it can be difficult for providers or patients to help their patients like access these medications. Um, how has your practice been affected by stricter opioid prescribing laws? It's probably a little different in Pennsylvania than it is here in Rhode Island. It is. I mean, we know that when the CDC guidelines came out in 2016, that it spurred a severe ripple effect throughout all 50 states regarding different types of state-based legislation around opioid use. So it, it, in New Jersey, I know I, I had people who, who have family in New Jersey, co-workers who have family in New Jersey, and they were saying how difficult it was for patients with serious medical conditions to get more than a week's worth of opioids. So it's the, the unintended consequences that came from 2016. I wouldn't necessarily say that that providers at my clinic or, or even pain management clinics in our area have been negatively impacted by the guidelines themselves. It's more along the lines of the shell shock that the guidelines happen to cause. So there's there we we went from a time in the 90s and, and 2000s to the 2010s where it was like, does it make it rain? Uh, because that's what we were told. Uh, to where we are now of complete fear and hesitation. And using an opioid, and I tell it to every student, I tell it to every physician and every resident that I work with, it's like any other medication. It's, is it safe and is it appropriate? So I, I tell people like, okay, you have to prescribe amoxicillin. Is it safe and appropriate? Your patient has an allergy to penicillin. Well, then it's not safe and appropriate. It's the same thing here. Uh, it's just that when we take time to look back at the training we received, in, whether it's in school or through CE or just honestly where a lot of people make their bread and butter, opioids are not given a lot of that attention. Now, in some states, mine is one of them. We mandate the training on that. So you're mandated by law to have a certain number of hours in school and then a certain number of CE credits with it. But compared to antibiotics or compared to blood pressure or diabetes, the training is just limited. So I think of it, a lot of it is a lack of awareness coupled with fear of either regulatory oversight, lawsuits, uh, local law enforcement, whatever, that, that 
hamstring some people. Now, were there people that did the wrong thing back in back in the day and still do? Yeah, the so-called there's bad apples in, in every profession, no matter where you go. And we'll do our best to continue to try to fix that. But we're people. That's unfortunately something that as a society is always going to be there. But we don't want to have it turn into hurting people who do need these types of medications long term. And I think that's the that's the ongoing discussion. And that's why I'm happy that the new uh, guidelines that are coming out provide more latitude for prescribers to do that. Yeah. Like you said, the current guidelines that we've been following are from 2016 and the shell shock that kind of came from those guidelines did change a lot of practice and how people see opioids. It really put like a negative view on them, despite them having an actual clinical benefit for some patients. So it's interesting to see that the CDC are the CDC is like possibly updating these guidelines. So we were looking at the draft. Um, Dr. Bradberg had shared a bunch of resources with me and the CDC sees these new draft guidelines as a way to improve communication between clinicians and patients and help them make more person-centered decisions related to their pain altogether. So these new guidelines are intended for primary care clinicians and other clinicians providing pain care for patients over the age of 18 with either acute pain, subacute pain, or chronic pain. And the goal, according to the CDC, is for this update to be more flexible and to enable person-centered decision-making and really looking at the patient as an individual and what their expected health outcomes are and what their goals are and their well-being as a whole. So do you think the current guidelines or the draft guidelines really achieve these goals? And if they do or do not, why do you think that? Well, 2016 certainly was, I can, I can, I'll put it this way. I can understand why 2016 happened. I'm not trying to say that I support them. I just understand why. The 2016 tried to objectify a subjective condition and, and you just can't do that. That's, that's like saying, okay, from now on, everybody's going to like chocolate cake. And that's the way it's going to be. And there might be people out there that say, but I want cherry pie. So that's, I, 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 it it just didn't work right. So now they're taking it and they're saying, okay, we're not going to put the cookie cutter on this. We're going to give you some very loose suggestions kind of at the end of the day, uh, and then let you do what you think is in the best interest of your patients. And that's great. I think that that's a good thing. It, it should be like that because it is subjective. It's, it's the same as it is with a psychiatric condition. It can't be a one size fits all. The issue that I think still is going to stand is that, like you said, this is really going to impact primary care, family medicine. I don't really see this having a dramatic change in either a pain management physician or a pharmacist who does pain management work we've been doing things a certain way for so long and following it for that long that I, I doubt it's really going to make much of a difference. Primary care though, I, I feel like that's where this is really targeted. It all goes back to though. Now we basically are flipping the light switch and going from insane regulation and a very tight, strict control to, yeah, okay. Now you can do whatever you want. We just opened up the floodgate. And it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a tiptoe. I think people are going to be still be very hesitant. And because 2016 did 
result in so many state issues, it's unlikely that those state issues are going to go away. The, the political will behind making changes along that line is kind of limited, and it's an election year. So I doubt a lot of those things happen to change right now. I, it's interesting. We talked about this at the national meeting when definitely why you're here, uh, at, just because this is such an interesting topic. And both Sabrina and I have sort of family related opioid uh, discussions, maybe we can, if, it, if it fits in here. But, you know, I always think, you know, you, you put some seminal paper out and then it takes eight years or 17 years or whatever to implement something. Here it took so little time to change these state laws and nobody's going to implement these things. And the physicians are still in fear. And, you know, I, I, Sabrina and I talked about uh, your colleague, Emily, our colleague, Emily, saying how her clinic is the only one treating people with opioids and how many days or weeks of a wait list to get opioids because nobody in primary care is doing it and publishing these guidelines this year. You're right. They're not going to, they're not going to change anything. I mean, so you talked about some of those barriers, um, you know, what's the difference? I think the only benefit I see, and maybe you may agree with the benefit of 2016 is not starting people on opioids. So like, what's the difference in your opinion of people who sort of that acute versus chronic pain or the people who, you know, start on non-pharmacolog, non-opioid uh, and non-pharmacologic therapies versus are this very marginalized group of so-called legacy patients or patients who are on chronic opioids? How, how do you see the different perspectives are going to change for those two groups? I think in terms of acute pain, I mean, look back at, look back at what happened with a lot of big pharma back in the nineties and two thousands, when it was, you stubbed your toe, here's an opioid, you know, you, you scraped your knee, take an opioid. So I even remember in, in the mid 2000s in school, just being told, you know, opioids for everything. That's what we do. And we just no such thing as a max dose and just keep going and going and going. And then pseudo addiction becomes a thing. And it's just that, just keep giving them more. And, and it kind of spiraled and it fit in nicely with how as a society, we have the pill for every ill type mentality where something happens, I take my pill, it goes away. Uh, and, and especially for pain, that was something that was welcomed. And nobody wants to be in pain. It's pretty straightforward. When it comes to the acute pain situations now, more and more evidence is coming out demonstrating the utility of NSAID acetaminophen combinations as compared to opioid acetaminophen combinations. Now, this the, the studies are looking at things like lower limb pain, lower, uh, lower limb leg fractures, stuff like that. But it's saying that the combination is just as good. So should we be starting with non-opioid alternatives? Yeah, we, we absolutely should be doing that. Uh, that's just like saying, should we start with an ACE inhibitor or should we just go directly to clonidine? Well, let's start with the ACE inhibitor because we don't you don't go directly to, you know, a Hail Mary pass on first down. That's not what we do. So going with it, going with it in a more stepwise approach, of course, assessing each patient for what they need. If this is a patient who's got, you know, history of peptic ulcer and they're on a blood thinner, then yeah, okay, maybe not the NSAID. But if it's, a, if it's safe for the patient, then yeah, let's start off with our lower level stuff that we know is equally as effective and we have evidence to show it. 
and then slowly escalate from there if we have to. I think that's a really good point. Like after reading the draft guidelines, like the actual draft kind of says that they evaluated some studies and some evidence and said that, wow, non-opioid therapies are effective for a lot of types of acute pain. And maybe there's not enough evidence to prove that there's a long-term benefit of opioids in these patients. And they really do recommend that opioids should be used only when the benefits for pain and, and the pain and function of these patients really outweigh the risks of initiating opioid therapy. But I think you're right. There are different patients and there are different like characteristics and diagnoses that really can change what they can or cannot take. Dr. Bratberg was mentioning like these personal examples. My father last month was discharged from the hospital and he was going to get discharged after having a minor surgery, but a surgery nonetheless, um, having an incision site and a drain put in. So he was going to get discharged with no pain med and just an antibiotic. And I was like, well, can he have something for pain? And after talking to his providers, providers like, no, he just needs some Tylenol and some ibuprofen or naproxen. And I was like, well, you know, he, my dad has heart failure. He doesn't take NSAIDs because it causes some GI irritation. So he really can't take NSAIDs. So I had to advocate for my father to get an opioid in case he needed it. My dad is not someone who ever looks for a pain medication. I have to convince him to take some acetaminophen if I think he needs it. Um, but he wouldn't have known to ask for that either. So it's also a conversation we have to have with our patients, maybe not if they're getting discharged from the hospital, but to see what they can and can't take if they know they can't take something. Some people may not have like a listed allergy to an EDSET or an intolerance, but we have to ask those questions as pharmacists and as providers to make sure that we're doing the best to treat our patients. That being said, some patients may not be willing to try non-opioid therapies for their acute pain if they know that, at least in Rhode Island, you can get a five-day supply of 20 tablets of oxycodone, five milligrams, and that's the acute pain for um, naive patients. What do you think about this? Like, what's your thoughts on that? I go back to if it's safe and appropriate, then then it should, then it's something that we can do. So if I have a patient who comes in and let's say that they're just pounding their fist on the table, I want we'll use your example my five days of oxycodone, and and that's it. I take I took NSAIDs they don't do anything. I took acetaminophen doesn't do anything. I want this. Okay, well let's, let's get to the root cause of it. Is it really because that's what the pain is, is causing you to do? And we'll look through your history and we'll, we'll do the best we can because it's due diligence on our end to do that. Or is there something, is there an underlying cause, right? Those are the things that we always have to look for. So if somebody comes in and says, this is what I need. I mean, the rule number one about pain is that you always believe your patient. So if somebody says, I've tried all these things and they don't work, well, let's have a discussion about what does tried mean? So I can have a patient who, well, I have, I can tell you how many patients I've had that have had some type of nerve related pain, whether it be diabetes pain or whether it just be a radiculopathy with sciatica or whatever. And they are a hallmark candidate for duloxetine. Like they, this is screaming duloxetine. They have the concurrent depression, the whole nine yards. I say, well, have you ever been on this before? Yeah, I've been on it. It didn't work. The first question is, 
what dose were you on? The next question is, and how long were you on that dose? Because that type of medicine, you need the right dose, the right duration. So with NSAIDs, it could be, what NSAIDs have you taken? And if somebody says, well, I just took the over-the-counter stuff and I took one or two pills and it didn't do anything, well, that's a bit of a different story than I tried NSAID. One, two, three, four, five at these different doses for this period of time and it didn't do anything. So it's part of getting a good history is something that we should do. And I think that especially if you work in, in you know, you're in an ambulatory care setting, you have access to the chart. Or if you work in a community setting and you have access to that whole drug list of everything that's been filled at your store, that's such an amazing opportunity to do that type of review, to go back and look at what people were taking, to look at other stuff that they happen to be on, and then to make a recommendation from there. I always hear a lot of students say, I can't do clinical, I put that in air quote, clinical stuff in a community pharmacy, which is just not true. We totally can do clinical stuff in community pharmacy. And that's a perfect example. Somebody comes in with a medication for an acute pain situation that they don't feel is right, or they don't feel would work for them. Have that discussion, do the retrospective drug review and make a call. That's something that you, you can do. I love that example of the duloxetine for nerve pain. I think because it kind of brings us back to this idea of stigma which is really hard because some patients will hear that or read that like duloxetine, like drug insert that people get with their medications and like, oh, it's an antidepressant. Oh, it can cause all of these side effects. And then they're like, oh, no way. I'm not taking that. But they won't, they will may or may not do the same thing for whatever opioid pain medication they're getting prescribed. And stigma is a really big part of this idea that there's not other options or that duloxetine may not work because it's initial purpose or what it was used for previously was for either anxiety or depression or whatever other um, psychiatric condition you want to name. But it's interesting to see how that carries over into pain management. Dr. Bratberg and I have talked quite a bit about naloxone and access to naloxone, and he has an entire elective on opioid use disorder. We talk a lot with the students about the stigma surrounding naloxone and how hard it is to get patients to realize that it's a great thing to have. You may not be someone who thinks you're going to take too much of the medication or you're not going to react to the opioid in the way that you would expect, but it's a great thing to have, but it can be really hard to have that conversation with patients, either in an ambulatory care setting, in a hospital or in the community. How do you talk to your patients about naloxone? And do you think your patients actually pick it up from their pharmacy? Those are two very different questions. Um, how, to, how to talk about it. So when we look at the data that's out there, we see that the biggest reasons, at least that pharmacists don't want to get it out, uh, is a lack of familiarity with the product and a lack of confidence in effectively communicating about it. So the first thing I try to do with every patient that I see when I, when I offer this to them, and it's both patients who are on opioids, it's patients who are on um, MOUD, it's patients who, who have family or friends who, who are in recovery. I try to offer this to as many people as possible. It's approaching it with a confident yet open method of communication. I'm not going to tiptoe around it. I'm not going to try to treat it like it's you know a hornet's nest or anything like that. I'm just going to come out and say, look, a side effect of this medication is respiratory depression. There's medication out there to help prevent that or to help treat that would you like to learn more and, and go with it? 
because if if you tiptoe around it, it it's just going to lead to the patients to being like something something's up. I don't want to deal with this and go. Uh, now, as far as whether or not they pick it up, that's a that's a whole separate conversation because there's do they actually get it? We'll have part two. We'll add part two, and we'll we'll have it all on the lock zone, and we'll get our friends. We'll have a whole round table. <laughs> I'm waiting. It's going to happen. That would be amazing. Well, I think Sabrina put in the in the notes here uh, an interesting thing that I've started asking is you know we in Rhode Island we have a co-prescribing law we have. Uh, free naloxone. Now we have double the number of doses we've ever dispensed coming from our opioid settlements. And so we're figuring out how to get that. Um, you know, and students will say, you know, students email me and I'm sure they email you like, I'm concerned. I want this because of fentanyl in recreational drugs or, or killing people who are recreational users of illicit substances or uh, pressed pills that they think are prescription pills but aren't. So there's that. Um, and then I say, okay, well, how many of you have it right now? <laughs> Sabrina was like, it was the first week and nobody had it on them. I'm like, well, what happens when you walk out of the library here and somebody's laying there? Yeah, you'll call 911. Yeah, they'll be here in one and a half minutes. But having it not on you, you know, again, I think there's actually three questions there. How you communicate it, you know, do they actually pick it up from the pharmacy, have money, the pharmacist has it in stock, all those things. And then do they actually carry it with them? So what what are your solutions and thoughts about that? How do you talk to your patients about that? Uh, at, least, at least as far as the, the, the need to carry it with them. I think, I think what people need to do is one, people need to realize that it's, it's something that you can carry with you. Because I, I have heard people say, well, if I get pulled over, if I go and, and the police find me for whatever reason, am I going to get arrested? Because this could this be considered drug paraphernalia? And I'll say that I, I have watched every single Law & Order SVU episode, but I'm not a lawyer. I, 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 I could play one on TV. I've watched that many of episodes, though. So I don't want to speak on behalf of, of any type of attorney or legal advice. But at least in, in our state, no, you know, you would not get arrested for having the lock zone. And I've not heard of any state where you would get arrested for that. I, I think that people don't realize that I need to carry it with me because well, it would, it, I got this for me, or I got this for my fill in the blank, my loved one, my friend, my whomever, and they're with me. So I'm with them when I'm at home and I leave that at home. Uh, plus, where am I going to, what am I going to put it in my pocket? What am I going to do with it? It's going to stand out. So, I, and I hear that. I think that, you know, I don't routinely walk around with a, a bag. I do carry a locks on with me everywhere I go. It's in my computer bag. And every time I go to a conference or to work or to wherever I, I bring it with me. But if I'm just walking around, like, you know, or going to the, going to the gym or going, going out, I'm like, where am I going to put this? So I think it's, it's I, I hear that concern. So whether it's keeping it, if you have a bag, keep it in the bag, uh, put, put one in your car. You can easily do that. If you happen to be out uh, there are, there are ways to, to, to work with it. I think it's just working with each individual patient to find a mechanism that would work for them. Because this is something that you can't just shoehorn everybody to do something. Uh, it, it's just not going to happen. But working with each individual person, and I think let's try to take it one step at a time. Step one, let's get them to even say yes. And then step two is how can we get them to carry it outside of their home? And that's, that's a process. Uh, but if we take it one step at a time and we make it unique to each patient, we'll find more success. I think that's a great 
like theme to follow is making it unique to each patient, whether that's with their naloxone or if that's with their pain medication or their treatment itself. So it's important that we follow these new guidelines or look at these new guidelines in the draft and evaluate whether we think these new guidelines actually do that. So I had looked at the CDC like draft guidelines um, for opioid prescribing. And I looked at the public comments that were published as well, because CDC held public comment and allowed um, people to make comments on it, as well as like held individual conversations about pain management. So from what they got from all of this public comment and all the people that let them know what they were thinking, the key themes that came out of this were that there's challenges to that patient provider relationship and that all of us as providers need to work with our patients to have this shared decision-making. And they also talked about the misapplication of the 2016 guidelines, like we talked about earlier, and how there's really inconsistent and inequitable access to effective pain management solutions for some patients and some patient populations. And the last thing they talked about as a big theme was that it's hard to reduce opioid use, but if we do it through different approaches and ensure proper pain management at the same time, patients would be more open and willing to do so. So just a couple questions from that. What do you think are some challenges to that good patient provider relationship? I know it's something that it sounds like you work, work really hard at, especially being a big like interprofessional team. What do you think are some challenges that you or some other clinicians may experience? At least the things that I've seen that I would say would probably the thing that would be the number one on the list is you got to have trust. And I tell all my students that you are going to be implicitly trusted by the public by virtue of that white coat, that white coat. And it says pharmacist on it. Pharmacists are always what top three. And it varies. It's like pharmacy, nursing, and someone else top three most trusted professions out there. So I said, they're going to trust you. The public will trust you implicitly, but that patient needs to trust you, the person wearing that coat, not just the coat itself. And I I said that because a lot of the patients that I I have seen seemingly have been passed around the system. They go to primary care, then you got to go to pain management to get this, but pain management won't prescribe. They'll only do the injection. So you got to go see this person. And then that person says, you got to go to do six weeks of physical therapy. So now you're over here. And next thing you know, the whole thing kind of cascades into depression and frustration and anger. So learning how to gain trust with the patient and connect with them as a person. And I tell every student, you have to tell me about your patient as a patient, and you have to tell me about your patient as a person. What do they do? What's their, what do they do for a living? What's their living situation like? Uh, Do they have adequate transportation? What's their responsibilities at home? Do they have someone there to help them? you know, those kinds of things, because we see them for just a snapshot of their day. We're not the ones going home with this condition. So learning how to have that level of trust and and how to build that trust. I remember some patients that I see, I don't even, we don't even talk about healthcare stuff. We'll sit and talk about all manners of things from, did you see the latest fill in the blank movie to, oh, the Philly's lost again. How about that? And everything that's that's in between. And I'm not even going to go down the Eagles route for that one uh, with folks from Rhode Island and, and the Patriots. Anyway, 
that's the type of stuff though that lets them see that there's more to me than just the coat just like there's more to them than just that medical record yeah so and i find that when patients do that i remember even working at geisinger and hearing patients say you know they come to the front desk to check in and i was in a physician's office and they're like oh and what physician are you here to see today they said i'm not here to see my physician i'm here to see my pharmacist today and I'm like, that's what it's about. That's how we get people to, to trust us. And I'm not trying to diss a physician there. There are a lot of physicians who do a lot of really good work. And I'm saying that it's how we build the trust with the patient. So gaining that trust, especially for something as far as weaning an opioid out, you got to have that trust. Because if, if I'm somebody who's taken this medication and it was the one thing that helped me, even if it doesn't help me now, it helped me at one point, And now some person is telling me to quit taking this. Ooh, you, you, you better have a lot of trust because that's that psychological hold of this is the only thing that ever helped me. And now you want me to get rid of it. So gotta build trust. Number one thing you have to do. You know, it's, it's great. Sabrina's going to probably say exactly what I'm going to say is that her whole theme for our season is on patient advocacy. And I think you just really crystallized all of those things on, on a whole bunch of different topics. But I think what you just said, not only applies to this uh, topic, but to really all of our other topics. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. So go, go ahead, Sabrina. Yeah. I want to thank you as well, because patient advocacy is so, so important. And like, that's our theme right now, but that should be the overarching theme for every provider everywhere, right? Like our goal is to get every patient we can fair and equitable and really good care, because that's what we want for ourselves and our family members. And it's tough because and Dr. Braffer and I have talked about this, there's a lot of disparities in healthcare. We know this. And there's even more so when it comes to pain management. It's a very difficult topic to bring up. How do you think this affects patients, especially those that are within those like minority groups? Unfortunately, stigma, stereotypes, it all exists. Uh, there, there's no hiding that. And unfortunately, that does play into the healthcare system. I know I, I, I saw a study a few years back that even said just the way we write in the chart can negatively impact the quality of care somebody will receive. So if you used stigmatizing or pejorative language in the chart, that it negatively impacts the patient when the next individual reads it. So it's all going to come back to culture change. That's where it is. And we're seeing that it's, it's a slow moving process. It's, it's glacial in its speed, but that's how culture change has always been. It's how can we continue to advocate for patients, provide the right education uh, to ensure that all patients are provided with appropriate quality care. And it's, it's going to continue to take time, but things such as this and continuing to work with providers in our communities, especially if we live or work in communities where at-risk patients are, then that's that's incumbent upon us. That's incumbent upon us as, as good neighbors. That's incumbent upon us as providers, as, as representatives of our communities to go out there and continue to advocate for the best treatment for everybody, the, the treatment that everyone deserves. And that's something that you know we, we constantly do. Uh, it's something that I know at our national organizations we do. There's a lot of effort going on at our state level for that as well. So we're, we're looking to a better future. A better future certainly will be coming. It's just keep doing everything we can do until that day comes. 
so well said, like the trust that we can build as providers, as pharmacists, as people in our communities is so, so important. And I think as a future pharmacist or anyone else in healthcare, but specifically pharmacists, we are so accessible to people. We talk about this in school all the time. Pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare professionals. And like you said, we're very well trusted. So when it comes to pain management, and I know this is a very loaded question, what do you think the pharmacist's role is in pain management? That is a very loaded question now, isn't it? What I would say is I think that I don't even think it depends on where you work. And I I think that because at the end of the day, we're all pharmacists. You know, I, I constantly hear all the time, well, I'm a community pharmacist or I'm a hospital pharmacist. And it's like, okay, let's, we got to get past that. We are a pharmacist who practices in the community. We're a pharmacist who practices in the hospital. So at the end of the day, we all, we all did the same schooling. Let's all treat patients the same way relative to where we were. How we can do it though, is where, what's our role? I think part of it is one, ensuring that we always get a proper medication reconciliation done because we all know that it's not done routinely, or at least to a quality level, because a lot of these medications, there's, there's really not a ton of medications that we utilize for pain management. There, there, there's not, well, I mean, especially compared to diabetes or COPD, where there's a lot here, there's not, it's how do we pick what medication of this small amount is the best. And that's going to depend a, a lot on what other, what other medications are being used with this patient. So making sure that that happens, making sure a proper pain assessment is always done. So we wrote controlled substance dispensing guidelines for our state. And we put in there, it's called a PQRST assessment, that that should be done at the point of dispensing. And it can be done very quickly to ensure that the medication is safe and appropriate. And then the other side of it is going to be education. I always say that pharmacists... Uh, pharmacists are the teachers of the healthcare world. We love teaching people stuff. That's, that's like our thing. Uh, and we love teaching providers. We love teaching patients. So teaching patients about the best way to utilize their meds, but also setting that good expectation, whether it's when you're prescribing it or you're sending someone home from the hospital or when you're in your community setting, that the goal is not to make the pain go to zero. The goal is to make your function get better. You have to do more than just take this medication. It can't just be a set it and forget it mentality. You need to, the best thing you can do long-term is exercise. But if we identify like pharmacists, I think see patients in the community setting something like 35 times a year. So that's 35 touch points where we can know if this person has strong psychosocial support at home. And if they don't have strong psychosocial support, touch base with them. Nothing says we can't or reach out to their physician to try to see if we can hook them up with some type of counseling, social work, whatever, to try to better address that. Because we know that treating pain is much more than just the ouch. It's the physical, it's the spiritual, it's the psychological, it's the social, it all comes together. So it all needs to be addressed. And pharmacists can serve as a great conduit of that to try to help better coordinate where people go. Because while they all go to all these different people, the one place they'll all end up is back at the pharmacy. So that's, I think, a really great way that pharmacists can get involved. So I'm sure in your advocacy effort, that, that's wonderfully said. Uh, I think as we conclude here, you know, it's a really great uh, uh, prescription essentially for that regimen. And of course, I think when people say, oh, you're taking our business, this is one of those topics. And Sabrina, I talk about this to say as public health specialists, as pain specialists, or at least pain referralists or uh, social work referrals or handling those social determinants of health, 
if we even got paid just a small portion <laughs> for each one of those referrals, everyone would have more business, the patients would benefit, communities would benefit. You know, I, that referral thing, I think we're going to have a whole show on just pharmacist-based referrals and community help to say, we are accessible. And if you paid us to refer to things, we're going to have an up-to-date guide to say, go here, go there, here's your problems, here's your solutions. And, and I think for pain, I think people are really looking for that and, and don't, like I think we said earlier, we, they don't know that those things exist. You had a, a really model clinic there where everybody was there and you all got together and talked. And that's really unfortunately rare. And so at least the baby steps here is to sort of be that referral person, pay us to do it and make sure that, you know, I know you're doing it and we're trying to do it here at your, I train folks to be, to be able to manage those things that other primary care don't want to do, you know, you know, we're, we're there, build it up. Yeah. None of, none of what it is that we advocate for, whether it be local state to national, is it meant in any way, shape or form to become a physician? No, that is not what we are trying to do. None, none of this is meant to supp- to supplant or take over the role um, so when I hear physician groups say, you're trying to take our jobs, you're trying to play physicians, it's like, no, no, we're not. This is one of those situations where I look at physician groups who advocate against us and say, we know you need help. We know that you are going to have a, at least a 50,000 primary care doc shortage over the next 10 years. We know that there are people that are driving two, three hours to see a primary care doctor and that there's only so much time that you have in a day. We're saying we're here to help you. You just need to let us. Our hands are opened up to you. We want to help you achieve your mission. You just need to take our hand. Uh, so I, I plead to physicians out there to talk to your groups and say, get us get us into the game. We're, we're here to help. We are not here to hurt you. We want to work with you. Uh, and there are there, with the ability to get paid for it, that's going to change the entire practice of pharmacy. And that's going to continue allowing pharmacists to do amazing things. So we're, we're ready. Um, bring us in. And that's what our goal is, right? Like that will change how we can help patients. And then that's why we're pharmacists, why we work in healthcare is because we want to help people and make people feel better. And it's important to realize, like Dr. Backwork said, this is the regimen. All right. This is the regimen for the pharmacist role in pain management. We know it includes staying up to date on our guidelines and the draft guidelines that could be coming out. And it's also about helping patients access effective pain management and creating that good patient provider relationship so we can build that trust with our patients so we can help them to the best of our ability. So Dr. Franco, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so great to talk to you and I have learned so much just in this hour. I know your students must be learning so much from you. So thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate the time and it was great. Smash that subscribe button. Find the regimen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts, and find out about new episodes every week at our Twitter handle at PharmDPubHealth and on Instagram. <laughs>